Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and in a special episode today, I'm joined by Marco Pierre White, the legendary chef once painted as the enfant terrible of English cuisine and the youngest cook ever to receive three Michelin stars. Marco's story has now passed into legend. The childhood on a council estate outside Leeds, the prodigious genius mentored by Albert Roux, Pierre Kaufman and Raymond Blanc, the outrageous work ethic and infamous temper, the pre-Raphaelite curls and smouldering brow. But to hear him tell his own story is an unpredictable joy. You don't so much interview Marco Pierre White as uncork a genie, if that's an expression. And so this episode does away with our usual structured conversation format and becomes something else entirely. A rolling meditation on childhood, luck, pain, celebrity, greed and good food, of course. We recorded this episode in one of the living rooms of Marco's home, a Victorian Gothic hotel he's converting just outside Bath. It kicks off with Marco explaining what walking into a three Michelin star restaurant really ought to feel like, and it rolls like a juggernaut from there. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. This is my opinion now. When you walk into a three-star, yes, the emotional impact on you, in my opinion, should be like taking the most beautiful girl to bed for the very first time. You're intimidated by her beauty. Mm. Does that ever happen to you? Yes. Yes. But you're... <laughs> but you're but I suppose you're, I can agree. But yeah. you're, 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 your fear... Yeah. Your intimidation has now been dissolved by the excitement. Yeah. And that's called love. And the sense that you're And that's lucky. what a three-star restaurant should be. Amazing. You should be... Sorry? It's amazing. That's a great analogy. I love that. That's what I think. Walk into a three-star, you should feel so intimidated. Like the great Fernand Poin, when he went to Maxime's. Mac, he was the most famous chef in France. Maxime's was the most famous restaurant in the world. Mm. When he arrived outside with Madame Poin, do you know what he did? He was so intimidated, he had to walk around the block. What? He was overcome. So intimidated to... by Maxime's. Oh, wow. Got <laughs> stage fright. And there was the most famous chef in France. Yeah. Yes. Standing outside the most famous restaurant in the world, and he had to walk round the corner. I love that. Walk to walk the block to pluck up the courage <laughs> and be walked in with his wife. Lovely. And that's what a three-star restaurant should be. When you walk into one, you should feel intimidated. I love that, yeah. Secondly, the next emotion, it should almost be like going to church. You metaphorically speaking, you bow. <laughs> the feeling should be taking a beautiful woman to the bed for the very f- to bed for the very first time in your life, who you fall in love with. You're intimidated by her, by her beauty. Uh-huh. 
But your fear and your intimidation is dissolved by your excitement and the thought of love. Yeah. And that's the three-star Michelin, in my opinion. I love that. That's incredible. Should we start rolling? I thought we had. Oh, yeah. Fine. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad we got that. Did you have some Viper juice? I had some yeah. Viper juice, yeah. I have to say, this is the first time on the podcast I've been offered hard liquor, and let alone one with a serpent dissolved in it. Well... This is the Marco Pierre White Well, treatment. the reality is, is I, don't get it out, I don't whip it out for everybody, let's okay. be honest. But you know something, we were talking, and conversation goes wherever it goes, yes? And I think, you know something? I think it's very important to witness something for a very first time. Mm. There's something rather beautiful. It's like, I gave someone an oyster the other day, yes? Mm. So I opened up some oysters the other day. Their first and one. I gave a, a friend an oyster. It was their very first oyster. And what gave them the confidence to have one yeah. is because of me. Yeah. They thought, if I'm going to get an oyster, then I want Marco to feed it to me. So I shucked it, opened it, put the sauce mignonette on, gave it to them. And you know what they said? What have I been missing all these years? Hmm. Yeah. And it's just about having that courage, almost metaphorically speaking, to blindfold yourself and just look, take me by the hand and just feed me. Yeah. And eating is, I could sit you down for lunch, yes, and I could feed you, and you would look at food completely differently. I hope you do. It'd blow your minds. You'd just think, this makes sense. Because the more you do to food, the more you take away from food. Yeah. Think about it. Mother Nature is the true artist. We're just the cooks. The produce is, is the thing. As I always say, great chefs have three things in common. Firstly, they accept and they respect that Mother Nature is a true artist. Mm. And they are the cook. Secondly, everything they do becomes an extension of themselves. Mm. And thirdly, they give you great insight into the world. They were born into the world which inspired them yeah. and they serve it on their plates. That's what great cooks do. What's your world then? What are you telling to people when they... I come from a very real world. Yeah. I come from a world where we were too poor to have tins. We had to peel potatoes. We had to peel sprouts. Yeah. Pod peas. <laughs> yeah, I used to go down the butchers with my father. He used to inspect four or five joints of rib of beef before he chose to have a great big discussion with the butcher. Because my father was a chef, you see. Yeah. My grandfather was a chef. My uncle was a chef. My other uncle was a butcher. My mother was a great cook. So I was wrapped up in food. Mm. I mean, like, I used to sit on the side watching my mother make risotto because she's from that region of Italy, the Veneto region, watching her make pasta, sit on the table with my friend Laura playing while all the women, my nonna, my two aunties, my mother, mm. all preparing the vegetables for the minestrone. As a child, you just take it for granted. It's just but on reflection of my, my early life. What wonderful memories. Like watching them harvest the figs, the farmer coming over mm. and giving my mother and my nonna figs, yes? Yeah. And seeing that, that milk. Have you ever seen a fig which has just been picked? It yeah. oozes milk. It yeah. bleeds milk. And watching Sticky. my mother tear it in half and giving me half. One, I didn't like sticky fingers, and I still don't like sticky fingers. But secondly, I liked the flavour, but I didn't like the texture as a child. But today, fig's one of my favourites. Of course. And my mother's favourite biscuit as a, as a young lady was fig rolls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so therefore, is when you think, it's about the romance of food. Yeah. It's about the romance. And do you think that for most chefs who are truly great, that always comes from their, their childhood or their, their parents in some way, or where they're from? Well, there's two types of chefs, isn't there? Are there? Yeah, well, there's two types of men, really, in life. I think you're going to tell me what they are. 
if you'd like to know, this is just my opinion. I'd love to know. There's the hungry ones, and there's the greedy ones. That's men. Could you be hungry and greedy? No. No. I'm talking about hungry for life and greedy for money. Okay, yeah. I, 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 do I need to ask which one you are? I suspect it's not you're... for me to say who I am, it's for people to choose who I am. Yeah. Everything I did in my life was by default. Remember, I made my name by what I put on the plate, not by being on TV. No. And I only did TV after I'd won by three stars. Yeah. And by hanging up my hat and saying no more, if I want to sit and do a podcast with you today at lunchtime, I can, can't I? Absolutely. If I want to go to America, I can. If I want to go to France, I can. If I want to just read a book in the garden, I can. Yeah. You're hungry for life in that way. I don't have to live a lie. No. And you don't answer to I anyone mean, else, I suppose. I don't live a lie. I don't pretend I cook when I don't cook. If I was the three-star chef today and I wasn't in my kitchen, I would be paranoid every time the Michelin guy came out. Mm. And it's obvious why the Michelin have pushed it up to seven. Seven three-stars in Britain. It's obvious why they've done it. Why is that? So they can chop. As in? By chopping three-stars, yes. Yeah. They get headlines, don't they? Oh, right, OK. Yeah. They give a hawker centre in, in Singapore a star, front page of the Straight Times. Yeah. They take a star away from Gordon Ramsay at Claridge's front page of the Times, yes? They that go to Japan, sense. they give 13 stars away. Like, there's a beautiful book called Au Revoir. And the, the number two from Michelin in France says when we were sent to Japan, mm. we were told to give stars, stars, stars to build the brand name Michelin in Japan. So it's as cynical as that? Look... The business is making tyres. They make their money out of making tyres, don't they? Yeah. And let's be very honest, they make very good tyres. Yeah. I think their knowledge of tyre making is greater than food. No. And remember, why did I give my three stars back? Why did I walk away? No disrespect to any of them. Why did you? But I was being judged by people who had less knowledge. My achievements as a cook don't mean anything to me. Those stars, what were they? They were just little stepping stones to where I wanted to get in my life. That's all. And we all need stepping stones. So when you look back on that time now, when you were, you were chasing after that goal, do you think you were happy? Were you just so hungry and possessed by the, the mission that you didn't really have time to think about things like that? What do you think of, of the younger Marco now, looking back? I was very hard working. I think that's an understatement, probably. I was really hard working. Can you tell us about the texture of a day? Well, what, what, well, I, well, well, work? well I, I worked over 100 hours a week for many, many weeks. I worked six, seven days a week. I like work. Work is the greatest painkiller known to man, isn't it? Think about it. As in, it's a distraction? Of course. Right. That's what it is. It's gastronomy. It's the greatest form of therapy <laughs> any misfit could ever be exposed to. What was the pain you were trying to subdue, do you think? I suppose what I was trying to do on reflection of my life Mm. I was overcoming the death of my mother at the age of six because I watched my mother die in front of me. Wow. I watched, them carry, I watched the ambulance men carry her away. Yeah. And my father was very silent. He, he was just silent. It's like my mother never existed. He eradicated her. Wow. But that was his way of dealing with her. Yeah. And so therefore, all that pain within me has to be released. And if you think about it, Hurt manifests itself within us as anger. So you have to release it from within you. 
But I have no regrets. No. For my, for my life, I have no regrets. I, there's moments I have shame about. In what way? What 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 do you feel shame about? Well, I'm not going to you, go into that. No. But I will admit to I have no regrets, because had it not been for all those mistakes I made, I wouldn't be the man I am today. Naturally, yeah. And so, therefore, you have to pay a high price for knowledge. And for me, walking down the road of self-discovery is far greater than Michelin stars. Yeah, absolutely. And so, walking down that road to win three stars in Michelin, there's no emotional knowledge. There's no spiritual knowledge. No. Because when you think, there's no emotional growth, that's a better word to say. There's no emotional growth. Because you're stunted, because all your energies go into your food. Yeah. Not into the development of yourself. So lots of cooks are emotionally stunted. Yeah. At that high level. Because everything they do has to go into the, the food. And so therefore, I had, to, I had to hand back my stars. I had to walk away. And what I did was, and this wasn't premeditated, what I did was I did exactly the same as I did when my mother died. I turned to nature. I went back to the English countryside and that's what I did when I was a little boy. When my yeah. mother died, I didn't have friends. I went, I turned to nature. I yeah. used to fish. I used to walk through the woods, observing nature. And so what I did was for the next five years, from the age of 38 to 43, really mm. what I did was I turned to nature relived my childhood and what I realized was that mother nature had been my surrogate mother as wow. a child and so I'm a great believer on I'm a great believer in reflection reflect process information because if you think about it if you walk if you have the courage to walk down the road of self-discovery which is a very lonely road when you walk down so far what's interesting you come to that moment in your life where you have to make a decision. Between. Because through understanding of yourself, now can you accept yourself. And if you have the courage to accept yourself for who you are and what you have been in your life, then you give the right reason. You accept the right reason. You do things for the right reason. You fall in love for the right reason, not mm. the wrong reasons. You have the opportunity to realise your true potential as a human being. Yeah. Because you can see yourself in entirety, you can be completely honest with who you are. And it's about brutal honesty. And so therefore, I was always honest with my food. Yeah. I was never honest with myself. So giving the stars back was your way of kind of switching that round? Well, what it did was it gave me now the time and the opportunity yeah. to invest in myself, to discover myself to relive the childhood that I never had. It's incredible when you put it like that. And that's how I see my life. It's like no one sees me. When do you see me in public? Very, when very do you see, When do you see me at gatherings? Never, do you? No. You don't see me in the social pages? Never. Did you ever I'm enjoy that seen. kind of attention? In the, no. In the 80s and 90s? Because the truth is, I'm an extrovert. Right. I just taught myself how to navigate. I was kind of struck was that as I was reading about you and your history about the moments of maybe luck or opportunity that you well, took. Luck, 
as I always say, yeah, and I'm re- and I really mean this, and I would advise it to any young person. Mm. Is I would tell any young person if I was sat now in a in a in a room with a thousand young people, and I said at the Oxford Union, I don't know if you saw my address at the Oxford yeah. Union, where I said, success is born out of luck. Mm. Luck is being given the opportunity. It's awareness of mind that takes advantage of that opportunity. So what were your... Had th- Alan Wicker not interviewed Getty, would he become the man he became? Almost certainly not. He saw that opportunity. Yeah. Had Terry O'Neill, the great photographer, not become Frank Sinatra's best friend, yeah. would he have had the opportunity to all those photographs, all those celebrities, all those stars? Mm. Well, let's not say celebs, let's say stars, because there's a difference between a star and a celeb. I agree with you that. <laughs> Massive difference. <laughs> So your your big moments of luck were, I suppose, there's one where you you missed your your bus back to Leeds, and you basically yeah, that, that wasn't Leeds, that was that was back to London. Back to London. So you stumbled on. My first luck was getting a job in the hotel. So if you look at if you look at it, defining moments of my life. One yeah. was my mother's death, defining moment. Getting a job at the Hotel St George, mm. another defining moment. Why? Because it took me off the council estate. I had a living job. I'd now been catapulted into a middle-class world. Yeah. Into quite a posh hotel. Then polishing the client's shoes in the afternoon, not because I had to, because I was... I always felt more comfortable with older people as a young man. As I used to go and see Ken and Bill. Mm. Yes. And their job in the afternoon was polishing the client's shoes. And when I walked in that day, where I sat, there was a little book, and it said, The Eagle Guide to Hotels and Restaurants in Great Britain. I flicked through it, I realised that restaurants had stars. Mm. And the finest restaurant in Britain, according to the great Egan Ronnie, was down the road in a restaurant called The Box Tree. Yeah. And I walked back to the kitchen that evening. And I said, if I'm going to be a cook, maybe I should work in the best restaurant in Britain. A month went by, two months went by, three months went by, four months went by, five months went by. But I always thought about Box Tree. And then one day I plucked up the courage to approach them for work. And on the day I approached them for work... A young man in the kitchen had given his notice that day. Wow. So you could just... Had I done it maybe the day before, I wouldn't have got the job, would I? No. And then, on a night time, after service, we all... It was very old-fashioned with Box Tree. And Mr. Reed and Mr. Long were almost like your adopted parents. You'd have to go and say goodnight to them in the Chinese room. But because I was the youngest in the kitchen, because I was too young to go to a pub, they used to all run round to the pub, to the Rose and Crown. So I used to go upstairs... And Mr. Reed and Mr. Long used to tell me stories about the great restaurants of France, like Maxime's, Lucas Caton, La Serre, La Tour d'Ajon, La Grande Fifot, mm. Bocuse, Barrier, Toigreau. But they spoke in such a visual way that it was almost as if I was there. And then they started telling me about the great restaurants of London, the Gavroche, La Tonte Claire, mm. the Waterside Inn just outside London, the Connaught, yeah. With the great Michel Baudin. Can you imagine being given that opportunity? Yeah. Had I gone up with everybody else, I'd have lasted two minutes, wouldn't it? Good night. But they like to talk and they just told me. So I've, even to this day, I've never dined in a Michelin-starred restaurant in France. No, I found I've that ne- I've never worked in a Michelin-starred restaurant in yeah. France. So the thing about me is, is I was fully homegrown, really. I'm a product of Britain. Mm. Um, I wrote to Gavroche. They sent me an application back in French. I tried to find it and I messed it up between Bryce and it back, so I threw it in the bin. I got a response from Tutor Glenn, which was an ex-chef of Gavroche, Christian Delta, who had a nice touch. I'd seen an, an article on him in the House and Garden in Box Tree. He was head chef of Tutor Glenn. 
So I went for the interview, so I got the coach from Yorkshire to Victoria. Then I had to get to Waterloo, and I got the train from Waterloo down to New Milton. And I came back, not thinking about what time last, because in those days, the last coach may have been six o'clock back to Yorkshire in 1981. Mm. Where today they run them through the night, but not in those days. So I missed my train, and uh, not my train, my coach back. So I thought I'd walk the streets. So I walked out the back of Victoria Coach Station. I thought if I walk up this road and turn right, walk to the end of that and turn right, turn right, I'll just go around in a big circle, I won't get lost. And I walked up to the crossroads and I turned right and I walked down Pimlico Road. I came to the crossroads. To my left was Chelsea Bridge Road. Straight on, as I know today, was Royal Hospital Road. And I turned right up Lowe's Lowe Street and I walked up the street about 100 yards, hmm. maybe less. I found myself looking in this restaurant, thinking that's rather posh, it's rather smart. I looked at the name above the door and it said Le Gavroche. And I thought to myself, this is the restaurant that I wrote to who sent me an application back in French. The great Albert is down in the kitchen now. <laughs> so I, I thought I'd go back in the morning. Because I'd always knocked on doors all my life. Yeah. Because when I was a kid, it was Boba Job, you knocked on doors. So knocking on doors was no, nothing new to me. I knocked on the door and they told me that they didn't open for lunch. But they told me how to get there, down Lowestone Street, straight over Chelsea Bridge Road, up Queenstown Road, get to the stop of Queenstown Road, where the Road is, turn left, down there about 300 yards, and it's just there on the right. Well, that sounds simple, doesn't it? But it wasn't that simple. I got completely lost, but by a miracle, I walked out of, up this road. When I got to, up this road, just to my left, on the opposite side of the road, I saw this office saying R-O-U-X. Miracle. I walked inside, and there was the great Albert who sat at his desk. He said, what can I do for you, young man? And I told him my story about what I'd gone through and where I worked. And you, you, it was the same day you still hadn't slept? You'd been walking the streets? I'd been, I hadn't slept. I'd been up wow. over 24 hours. <laughs> I thought, so I told him my own story. But what I didn't realise at the time was the ga, Le Gavroche means street urchin. <laughs> and over the last 26, 27 hours or 28 hours, I turned myself into a street urchin. Wow, you were. And Albert gave me my break. Another defining moment in my life. It was particularly tough working for him, wasn't it? Everywhere was tough. At that level, you know, remember, it's like playing in the Premiership at that, that highest level. It's like playing for Man U. It's like playing for Chelsea. It's like playing for Man City. But emotionally tough, as much as the pressure. Oh, emotionally was and tough. mentally. I mean, em emotionally and mentally. Well, those kitchens were very tough in those days. Remember, when I went to the Hotel St George in the seventies, the chef was as hard as nails, as hard as nails. Were you scared as a young man going into the kitchen at La Gavroche? Well. I was ruled by fear of failure, mm. that fear of being sacked. That was stronger than the fear of the, the hard-as-nails chefs. 100%. Wow. I grew up in a hard world. I grew up in a tough world. I came yeah. from a council estate. I was brought up with hard people. My father was as hard as nails from the slums of Leeds. So that working-class world, you were brought up tough in those days. But, you know, that fear of failure, like at the Hotel St George, like at the Box Tree, you lost your job, you had to go back home. Mm. I had to go back home to the council seat, didn't I? So I worked so hard, I ran so hard. I didn't care about tiredness. And what did you learn when you were there? What was the kind of... Well, at the Hotel St George, yeah. I learned how to absorb pressure. I learned how to say, yes, chef. I learned how to use a knife. I learned how to organise. Yeah. That's what I learned. Absorb pressure, as in just take... Well, take I say in. something, if you can't absorb pressure, how can you deliver? I had lots of very good cooks with me, but they could never do the stove. They didn't have it within them to absorb the pressure. Because before you can deliver, you've got to absorb the pressure and you've got to work under immense pressure. 
Are, are they still like that now, those restaurants in the kitchen? No, no, no it's a very different world now. Well, look, if you look at what happens now, a lot of these big restaurants have got set menus, haven't they? Yeah. Or minimal choices. The, the world has changed. Yeah. You know, the golden age of gastronomy is gone. It's like the golden age of boxing is gone. Yeah. When you think the golden age of boxing was Ali, Foreman, Fraser, Norton, Holmes. It feels sometimes like the golden age of most things is gone. <laughs> well, the romance has gone, hasn't it? I'm afraid it has. Why is that? Is it? Is it? It's like I like watching seventies soccer. Oh, that's that's hard. I tell you what, it's tough. It's hard. I sat down with two great footballers. Mm. I asked them both the same question. I sat down with Mike Summerby, who was part of that city side that won the league in I think '69. Yeah. And I said, "What were Leeds like?" And Mike Summerby sat down and said, "They weren't dirty. Everyone says they were dirty. They were hard." and skilled, talented. Stephen Perryman from Tottenham, I asked him the same question. He said, the most intimidating place on earth on a Saturday afternoon was Ellen Road. Yeah. He said, but they were skilled and they were talented. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So two, two players from that generation said about Leeds. And I suppose when you went to Ellen Road, you feared. When you went to Old Trafford under Ferguson, being a player, you must be terrified. Yeah. Going to Liverpool on a Saturday afternoon when it was Shanks, mm. you must have been terrified. Because your intimidation is almost born out of respect, isn't it? Yeah. That's, part that's, of that's what those great chefs were like. Al Barry was an intimidating character. But your intimidation was born out of respect, not out of him being intimidating. So you, in a strange and peculiar way, you intimidated yourself. They didn't intimidate you. Your respect for that man, like Kaufman, intimidated you. It's like your sergeant major. Hey, he's the man who's going to save your life, isn't he? Yeah. In the army. But you're intimidated by him. But he loved you and he did everything because he wanted the best of you and he wanted you to survive if you ever ended up in a war. So those boys, and I saw those boys, I saw Albert, Michel, I worked for them, Kaufman, Nico, the boys at the box tree who were as hard as nails. I'd never change anything. No. And what a privilege to have worked for them. What a privilege to have seen the old world of gastronomy and the end of Escoffier's world and then see the beginning of the modern world. I saw Inflection. the tail end of Escoffier's world. Mm. I saw the beginning of the modern world and became part of the modern world. It seems that you were probably the last chef who kind of inhabited that world. Well, I'm the last of, of that, that generation. I'm the last of that generation. Because really, if you look at me, I'm, I belong to the old world, really. Yeah. Because when I won two stars, so... In 1984, Gavroche, Waterside, Boxtree, Connaught, Tonclair, Raymond were all two and three stars. Yeah. And then, six years later, I was the first restaurant to be elevated from one star to two star to join that top mm. echelon of restaurants. But I was a product of them. And then, then you were the, the boss yourself. You were in charge. But I didn't have the skills. No? I didn't have the skills. I was a cook. I had to teach myself leadership skills. Because one thing about all great cooks, apart from being great cooks, they're Pied Pipers. People follow them well. They make 
their team follow them and believe in their dream. Yeah. And the truth is, I never won three stars. I never won three stars. It was the young women and the young men behind me who won three stars. They were the orchestra. They created the symphony. I was just the conductor and the composer. Is that why you were so, I suppose, loyal and defensive sometimes when people... I mean, the, the famous stories of you in the 80s and 90s, I'm not sure how much truth Well, all was. I can say is most of my reputation is a product of exaggeration and ignorance. But has it been useful sometimes, that reputation? Well, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Absolutely. Let's not forget, the press are the only people who get 200%. Yeah. 100% in making you and 100% in destroying you. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely and right. And that's what a lot of people do not realise. Yeah. And you you'll never you just get one. You can't have your cake and eat it. You'll never just get one. There's a price to pay. It's as simple as that. Absolutely. And if you dance with the devil, then you've got to expect it. But I do believe that when you sit down to give an interview, mm. then you have a duty to give insight. So say one young man or one young girl reads or listens to whatever this is, I don't know if it comes out in... It'll do both, formal, I think, yeah. Is... If it, if it could be a catalyst to them. They may be a little bit lost in life and think, what do I do with my life? It's like white heat. Mm. How many young men and women became chefs because of that book? It inspired generations, not just one generation. Because it gave insight. And I think if you sit down, you have to give insight. Absolutely. To who you are as a person. And it's, you know, it's... It's like my daughter was at the Royal Ballet for, for years. And I said to her, he said, Mirabel, do you have a dream? And she, she used to say, yes, Daddy. I never asked her her dream. But what I used to say to her, Mirabel, if you have a dream, then you have a duty and a responsibility to yourself to make it come true. Mm. And that's what I would say to every young woman, every young man. If you have a dream, then you have a duty and responsibility to make it come true. Because if you don't, you're just a fantasist. <laughs> Sadly, there's a lot of fantasists with a lot of regrets, I think. And you've got to be prepared to make the investment. What is the investment? Pure? Is it time in Give the way yourself. that you did it? Turn yourself into the sacrificial lamb for knowledge. Yes, I retired from the stove. And I accept that chefs are allowed to stray from the stove. But they should always stay close to the flame. Your Marco White and then Marco Pierre White became the kind of, I don't know, maybe the, a character born differently. Is that well, I was christened Marco Pierre White. Yes. That's my name. But it, but it wasn't the name you used professionally? No. No. Is, is what happened was... So I was Marco White. And the truth is, being born on the Leeds council estate in the 60s, mm. having a name like Marco was, in, was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. Being called Marco Pierre was really embarrassing. <laughs> and I used to beg my brothers not to tell anyone my second name was Pierre. And how I became Marco Pierre White. And this is a man who played a very big part in my life was Egan Ronnie. And Nicola Dennis from Shiniko, the Three Star Michelin, sent 
Egon. He said, you've got to go and eat Marco's food. You've got to go eat his food. So Egan came over, so I fed the great Egan Ronnie, the man whose guide I'd read in the mm. Hotel St George all those years earlier. Amazing, really. And um, I was on the verge of going bust. I was only three months old. The restaurant. And he sat there and I went to see him at the end. He said, how do you get a name like Marco? And I turned around and said to him, I said, my mum's Italian, but my name is Marco Pierre. Mm. And he did this whole page in the Times the Sunday Times, because he was fascinated. And the, whole, the headline was something like the chef with an Italian, a French and an English surname, mm. Marco Pierre White. And so from that day, I became Marco Pierre White. So Egan was now responsible for me. Mm. He gave me my dream. Yeah, he gave you your name. And then he gave me, my, oh, gave me the confidence to use yeah. my name. Yeah. And then I became known as Marco Pierre White. And my dream as a young boy was to win Egan Ring Restaurant of the Year, which I won. But I won Chef of the Year first, which I was so disappointed. It was Chef of the Year by Egan Ring. I was so disappointed. Isn't that, isn't that better for one's ego? To be no, chef, I wanted to win. Because when I was a boy, there was no such thing as Chef of the Year. They only had two awards, Hotel of the Year and Restaurant of the Year. Yeah. So my dream was Restaurant of the Year. Fine. <laughs> but then... You got the wrong one. Then I got the wrong one, so I was really pissed off. I was really pissed off. And then two years later, I won Restaurant of the Year at the Hyde Park. So when I moved from Harvey's to the Hyde Park, yeah. I got a lease. They've got David Frost to present it to me on behalf of the Union Guide. It seems another one of those quirks of, of fortune that he just happened to ask you that question and that kind of... And Egan was an amazing man. I got to know him. Yeah. And I had lunch with him just before he died. And he was an amazing man. And to have known the people I've known within the industry whether it was the great Egan Runny, mm. whether it was the great Keith Floyd, Peter Langham, yeah. Michael Smith, you wouldn't know him, no. Robert Carrier, and then all those great restaurateurs from the 50s, you know, whose sort of careers were coming to an end as mine was beginning. And then, of course, the Rue Brothers, yeah. Kaufman, um, Blom, and the rest of them. I mean, like now Raymond's now 70. Mm. or 71 I think I think, I think Raymond's 72 this year you know I knew Raymond when he was my head chef and he was I think 34 years old yeah was Raymond and so to have seen what so when you think last Saturday was 43 years ago to the day I started at the Hotel St George if I think of what I've seen in my life because what was interesting in in the 1970s all French restaurants basically had the same menu. It was Duc Arrange, Duc Montmorency, Tornador Rossini. It basically was the same. The difference was, was the technical ability of the chef and the name above the door and the environment you served your food mm. in. And I was very privileged. So I saw all those old classics from Escoffi's world. Amazing. Amazing. And I'm not saying all of Escoffi's um, dishes made sense. But when you think, duck and orange done well is one of the most delicious things on earth to eat. Yeah. You know, I told him Don Rossini, done well, is one of the most delicious things on earth to eat. Uh, like a Dieu Royale, I mean, amazing. Or, you know, do you think of those great French classics, beautiful, and, yeah. and to have been exposed to it. And remember when I started, everything was silver surface. Then what happened was, like at Gavroche, 
half the food was served on plates, half it was still silver served. Mm. And so when I became a head chef in my own right, at the Oak Room, I started to bring back the silver service. So, for example, you might have an, um, uh, the milk-fed lamb with the gratin dauphinoise and the petit pois de Francaise mm. and the jus gras carved in the room. You might have the daub de boeuf and ancienne served in the room. Do you see? And then some of it was plated. Because there's something rather beautiful about taking food into a room. Yeah. Because... It's that it's generosity. Got, it's got it? the sense of occasion. It's the theatre. Yeah. But it's hot. And you can see... And so Gavroche was... Albert Roux, if you look at... And if you think of the third thing I said about great French chefs, it give you great insight into the world they were born into, the world that was inspired them. If you look at Albert's... Albert trained in those classic houses like the Castle family, mm. the Rothschilds. His brother was at the, uh, the embassy in, pra- in Paris. Yeah. And so therefore, they brought that world into their restaurants. And so to have seen that, and now, what have you got to do? You've got knickknacks. <laughs> You've got canopy party. Who would in their right mind pay for it? eat tepid food mm. with herbs put on top with tweezers or flowers which do nothing for it or a little slash of sauce I mean I mean the problem is you start eating this food you, you've eaten half the protein and that garnish is gone so you start on another garnish I mean it's just it's so confusing like one of my favourite restaurants as a young boy was uh, he was the first head chef of um, La Gavroche which mm. was a man called Guy Mouillon and Guy Mouillon was a very good chef and he was the first head chef of La Gavroche. And then he left Gavroche and went to work for the great Raymond Olivier, who was the big chef in France. Three stars, he had Le Grand Fifor, and he opened in Belgravia. And so Guimouillon went to be his head chef. It didn't work. And so then Guimouillon opened his own restaurant in Walton Street in Chelsea called Mac Cuisine. And me and Nico used to go there all the time. You'd have a tonneau of sep, so you get a nice proper piece of beef. With the fumi of seps, with the Madeira base sauce, yes. Generous amount of seps, bang, what a lunch that was. <laughs> or you'd have the scallop du saumon a la osse, like the toi gros du, which was their speciality. Bang, generous amounts of sorrel in the sauce, bang, the, esca- the scallop of salmon cooked, min cui. Yeah. Wild salmon, not farmed. You just think, this is eating. Where do you eat now? When I go to London, I tend to arrive, which is very rare. I tend to go, to, firstly, to, um, I go to Bibendum, yeah. downstairs, and I have a coffee in the morning, and I have my meetings, then I tend to stay there for lunch, or I would go to Kaufman, but Kaufman's no longer at the Barclay, I would go to Pierre Kaufman's, mm. and then in the evening I tend to go to Riva in Barnes, with my yeah. old friend Andrea, you've been to Riva in yeah. Barnes, very nice, very understated, yeah, very casual, yeah. just real Italian food, mm. you know, and if you look at the clientele base there, very smart. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but very understated. A lot of the stars who go there, go there because they're not going to get papped. Mm. Why would you go to Scots, the Ivy, to be papped? Because you might like to get papped. Well, then go person. there. <laughs> yeah. But people who don't want to be papped, go off to Riva. Like the great A.A. Gill, it's one of his favourite restaurants. Yeah. He was always in there with Adrian. You know, like I've seen Heston there, I've seen Stanley Tucci there. The list goes on. Of real people who are good at their craft, but they just want to be left alone and eat delicious mm. food. And Andrea will bring out a delicious bottle of wine. So you buy one of his special bottles of wine. That's fine. Yeah. You're at a fair price, but he has to have a glass out of the bottle. 
<laughs> one of my favourite restaurateurs in the world is Andrea. Talking of Paps, did you like that side of it when you begin, began to become the story? I always, I always really stayed away from it all. If you look back, I stayed away from it. I was never in the limelight. But you were called the first kind of rock star chef. Did you like that epithet? I never really thought about it because I was always in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, as I've said, most of my reputation is a product of exaggeration in England. So when you think, the Daily Mail picked upon me, for example, and there was a boy who has a certain look with long hair, as Bob Clark used to always say, that pre-Raphaelite look, yes? Yeah. Bang, went out with glamorous, attractive, aristocratic girls, yes? Yeah. Bang, <laughs> I cooked in the kitchen, I kicked customers out. I suppose I was the perfect recipe for the Daily Mail of the day, wasn't I? Yeah. But, you know, I suppose, I, as my daughter said to me, my daughter Mirabel said to me about a month ago, she said, Daddy, you, I've been reading about you and looking into your early life as a cook. And you know what I think you are, Daddy? And I said to my little girl, I said, what do you think I am, darling? And she said, you're the Che Guevara of food. Wow. Do you like that tagline? Well, I thought it was rather interesting that my daughter... It's had, an odd combination. ...had looked at me as a revolutionary. Yeah. Which lots of people have. But she's obviously picked up on the picture with the fag mm. and the hair. Where you look at Che Guevara with the long hair, isn't it? That's mm. what she's obviously picked up on. That's what she's seen subconsciously. But that's what she said. You were the Sheikh of Ara of gastronomy, Danny. Which I suppose is, since my daughter said it to me, I suppose it's rather beautiful, actually. I think it's a compliment. And you know something? I think he was a bit more unhinged than I was. I think he was. He came to a nasty end. As I well, like I, in Bolivia. He had a terrible ending, didn't he? Yeah. So we best stay. It away wasn't from that. good. But I kind of, you know, he was an inter he was an extreme character, which I can relate to. Are you extreme now? Have you mellowed? I'm a romantic idealist. Look at what I build. Look at what I make. This place is a good example. When we talk about generosity, you're going to live above the shop and be a part of it every day. It's, if people are coming to your house, they're not coming into a hotel. But that's the point of difference, you see. Mm. So you can sit in a room, you'll see pictures of my mother. You'll see pictures of my daughter. There's one there behind you. You'll see little things. And... I suppose, if you, look, I walk into very smart hotels. I live in them most of the time, because that's my life. I spend a lot of time out of the country. And the furnishings are the cheapest. Bang, make it by 60 times. It's just, there's nothing real. No. And um, I think if you have something in life, then you have a duty to share it. Otherwise, what's the point of having it? Let's be honest, I came from humble beginnings, which you know. People who have little in life, they share. People who have lots, give. Or they hoard it. <laughs> but they give. Sometimes, yeah, of course. They give it. Because it has no value. Just yeah. give it. Yeah. Give a party. But there's something rather beautiful about watching my mother tear a fig in half mm. and giving me in half. There's something rather beautiful about someone watching them peel an orange and they tear it and share it. So life's all about sharing. Mm. It's not about giving. Yeah. It's like what I said about there are people who are hungry and there are people who are greedy. People who are hungry for knowledge. People who are greedy for wealth and status. Don't be that one. 
No. But you asked me that question. Yeah. It's for you to make that answer. No. Amazing. You know, Marco, thank you so, so much. We can't take it with us, can we? No. I mean, let's be honest. Like the pharaohs, when they went, they put it on a tomb for them, didn't they? They tried their <laughs> they best to take it with, with them. them. Yeah. Can you imagine putting this lot in a tomb <laughs> for me? <laughs> I hope you've had a nice time. I hope you weren't too It's bored. been wonderful. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you